Welcome to Mindset Matters, the official podcast of Oregon Realtors. In this podcast, we dive deep into the secrets of top performing agents, market trends, strategies, tips and tricks that will transform and elevate your real estate career to new heights. Follow or subscribe today and stay tuned for a podcast that's not just about real estate. It's about mastering the mindset for success. All right. Good morning. I'm Jenny Pakula, CEO for the Oregon Realtors. Welcome to our second episode of Mindset Matters podcast series. Today, we are fortunate to have past 2022 Oregon Realtors past president Jeff Wyron as our guest today. Jeff has had his real estate license since August 2004. So he's been in the biz almost 20 years. He knows a thing or two. Well, just ask him. <laughs> he is the president and managing principal broker with Premier Property Group, LLC. Jeff is a wealth of information. He is kind. He is generous with his wisdom. Anything you need in this business, Jeff is such a great resource. Tips, tricks, how to do something. Jeff's done it. He's got a great answer for everything. So Jeff, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, Jenny. It's oh, great to be here. Good Thanks to, for the nice intro. Yes. I appreciate it. Good to see you. Happy holidays. Yes, We're going to talk about a couple things today, given all of the external noise in the industry, both with the association and just the industry in general. I think it's really important now more than ever that agents stay focused and really get serious about their business. Mm -hmm. So what are you seeing, you've been doing this a long time, what are the top three reasons why agents leave the business? And you can take in whatever order you think is the most important, the least important and elaborate. Great. Yeah. I think when we have a change in the market, like we've experienced this last 18 months, it takes me back to when the market shifted in 2008, 2009. And, and by the way, the market was much worse then. I mean, agents who are struggling, and I know it's been a tough year for a lot of people, but agents who are struggling now probably can't fathom a market in which there was 19 months of inventory on the market where you would need to almost take a 24-month listing because you knew it was going to take longer than 12 months to sell somebody's house. And if you didn't know how to do short sales, you, were, you, were, you weren't going to make it, quite frankly. So as bad as the market seems now, it has been worse. And I think that anytime the market shifts, it creates the opportunity for, for us to focus back on basics. You hear that a lot if you go to real estate seminars, back to the basics. Um, and when a market is too quick, when things seem a little bit too easy and everybody's flooding the gate to get their real estate license, uh, habits tend to go negative, right? You tend to not do the things that you know you need to do to succeed in this business. And so first and foremost, I think the number one reason why agents leave this business is because they don't prospect. And jokingly, I always say, I talk to a lot of agents who will say, well, I don't, I don't want to call the people that I do know because I don't want to be that salesperson. Like I don't want to make everybody feel weird that I am calling them, asking them to help me out. And then they also don't like cold calling, right? They don't want to call and talk to the people that they don't know. And so I summarize that and say, well, if you don't want to talk to the people that you do know, and you don't want to talk to the people that you, that you don't know, who do you, who do you plan to sell real estate to? Right? So, I mean, that's definitely an oversimplification, but I think prospecting 
is the name of the game. And this, so what does that mean? Talk about prospecting a little bit. When you coach your agents, you got a prospect. What does that mean? Calling past clients for two hours a day, reaching out to potential new clients in neighborhoods they're farming. What What is prospecting in your mind? When you talk to your agents about that, what is it? Great question. I mean, at my company and my business personally, I do business by referral. So, and we teach that. And so prospecting means engaging with your sphere of influence and, you know, asking for that business, finding out who in your sphere of influence is likely going to do a real estate transaction in the next 12 to 24 months, making sure that you're in regular contact with those people, really evaluating your database to understand who are your top referral partners, right? Who's the client in your database that when they see their neighbor putting fresh bark dust in their front yard, they think, wow, that might be somebody who's going to sell. And I'm going to go hand them Jeff's business card and tell them that they have to use Jeff. You all have people like that in your database and you need to know who they are. You, you have raving fans and you need to know who they are. So when I teach prospecting, that's really the focus is on sphere of influence. But I want to break it down a little bit and say prospecting can be dumped into two buckets, in my opinion, active prospecting and passive prospecting. Active prospecting is a phone call, a face-to-face -face interaction, a handwritten personal note, something that is personal and, you know, a personal touch from you that's deeply meaningful and direct to another person, right? If I write you a personal note and send it to you in the mail, you are going to open it and you are going to read it, right? If I call you, even if I'm leaving you a voicemail, it's a direct connection between you and I, okay? And if I'm showing up at your house with a small little item of value or a holiday greeting something or what you know whatever a pie or a wreath or a whatever there's a direct connection between us that is active prospecting passive prospecting is all the other stuff your facebook posts your tweets your instagram posts your mass emails that you send out and i think a lot of times agents make the mistake of coming in doing the passive prospecting stuff that's easy and they feel like their business is doing really well, even if they aren't having any transactions because they posted this article on Facebook and they got 20 likes or 50 or 200 likes or whatever, right? But did you actually speak to anybody or make a personal connection with anyone? Even if in the chat after that article that you posted, you're connecting, that's better, but I still consider that passive prospect. And so do you think when markets are good, agents can get business from passive sure. prospecting. So they think, yes, that's been effective, but that's not going to work in all kinds of markets. you got to be prepared and well-versed in all types of prospecting. Yeah, I, I would say it's a sliding scale of perspective. I mean, an agent who is, quote unquote, succeeding through passive marketing efforts, imagine how much more success they could have if they also made a personal connection with, you know, at least five people a day. Yeah. Right. And listen, I've been teaching business planning for most of my career. I started a business planning class that I wrote in 2008. The market crashed in early 2008. I had just started managing an office in 2007. I cannot tell you how many agents I had walking into my office in 2008 and saying, my house is getting foreclosed on, my Lincoln Navigator is getting repossessed, and I have an $80,000 tax liability and I have no money to pay it. And I pull up their production and I'm like, you made $500,000 last year. Where did it all go? What did you do with it? And how could you not have a plan for that money? And how could you not know that your 
going to make that much this year, even in a difficult market. Because the reality is this, even in the market that we're in now, where transaction counts, depending upon where you are in the state, are down 18 to 25 percent. There are some agents having the best year of their careers. Yeah. And, and it's because those are the agents who have figured out that the number one thing they should be doing every day is actively prospecting. And again, I've been doing this for long enough to know you can run your numbers and you can shake it all up and say, well, you know, how many leads do I need to get a referral? You know, how many referrals do I need to get a closing? How many closings do I want to have this year? And then how many contacts do I need to get a lead? Right. So you can kind of do that math if you really understand your business. And I would encourage you to. But I'm going to tell you it's going to range somewhere between four and a half and five and a half active contacts a day. Right. So if you just made a dedicated effort to actively communicating with five people a day, you're going to have an incredible business. So when you say it doesn't matter whether those five people are in their sphere or just five people they meet down the aisle at the grocery store. I mean, I think there has to be some applied science to it. You have to make a committed and consistent effort to how you want to run your business. If you're doing business by referral, that doesn't mean you're not talking to the person at the grocery store. Oh, you weren't referred to me. I can't work yeah, with you. Right. Of course not. Right. Yeah. But what I find a lot of times, especially with new agents, is they use online lead aggregators, right? And if that's your business model, super terrific. But if you don't have a lead flow aside from that, if you're writing a $1,000 to $10,000 a month check, hoping to get some business from that, you are going to go broke. Yeah. That's not a business plan, yeah. right? So if you have a, you know, if you're getting online leads and you have a plan for how you're going to follow up with those, great. If you're doing open houses and you meet new clients, great. If you're, you know, going to the grocery store and you wear your realtor pin and you meet somebody in line at the checkout stand, great. But you have to have a plan for actively speaking with five people every day. And so what sort of accountability do you expect from your agents on prospecting? It's, I mean, I realize they're independent contractors and you give them the tools and they've got to do the work, but... Do you have accountability? I mean, I realize they need to be accountable to themselves, but what do you expect? Yeah, I mean, for our agents, my expectation is that they will participate in the opportunities that we offer at our brokerage. So I'm going to lay it out in two ways. We offer the opportunities at our brokerage, and we have a very large brokerage, as you know. So I have agents who sell five homes a year, and they're fine with that. It's it's a pre-retirement gig for them. They don't want to do very much more business. They want to spend time traveling and with their grandkids and they can sell five deals a year to supplement whatever pension they've got or whatever. And it's great for them. Yeah. And I have agents who have teams that sell 150 million a year. I have everybody in the middle of that spectrum. So for me to say, well, my expectation of my agents is that they all do this. It's a very big swath of productivity and need for each agent. But I will tell you that my son-in-law works directly with me on my team. He and I are a team and we work together to still sell real estate despite my leadership at the company. And my expectations of him are exactly what I'm telling you. We're going to call five people a day. They're going to drop, you know, do pop buys and drop little gifts off at people. We're going to write personal notes. We use the Buffini system for client care and that CRM. Which and is what? Uh, so Buffini is a coaching company, a national co coaching company. There's lots of them. Tom yeah. Ferry has a coaching mm -hmm. company. I mean, there's tons of, of great coaching companies. Rick Gray is a more local guy who's got a good coaching system. But most of them have some kind of a CRM and a coaching mechanism where there's some accountability built into that. 
Um, and so I would say if you're an agent and you are on a team, you're going to have some built-in accountability from that. And that's great. You may or may not like that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but if you're an individual agent, there's got to be another individual agent out there who could benefit from that accountability with you and who you could benefit from that accountability with them. But if I'm bottom lining it for the sake of trying to get as many people to actually take action as possible, five calls a day, people, five active prospecting events every day. If you come into your office and if you will make an hour or two hour commitment to prospecting, you will have business. So, so did those five calls, what if you had to leave messages for three out of the five doesn't count? Okay. No, it counts. That's that all counts? right. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you'd love to be able to talk to everybody, but you're not yeah, going to. Right. Right. I mean, right. it's just not possible. And, and so here's the other thing that I would say, because I think the biggest reason why agents don't make phone calls, right? Why they don't want to talk to the people that they do know and that they're afraid of the rejection of a cold call is agents who aren't comfortable calling their brother or their neighbor and saying, hey, I'm a realtor and I'd love to work with you, right? It's because the typical dialogue is, you know, hey, Jenny, it's Jeff. How are you doing? How are the kids? How are the family? Blah, 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 blah. You have a bunch of small talk for five minutes and you as an agent feel like you've got this real estate hammer behind your back and you're waiting to smack them on the top of the head with it and ask them for business. And it feels very disingenuous, yeah. right? And so, you know, that's the problem, right? Agents are like, gosh, you know, I just feel like I'm using people. So why don't you flip the script? Why don't you start the phone call by saying, hey, Jenny, it's Jeff. I'm just letting you know this is a business call. I want to talk to you about my business. Do you have two minutes to talk to me today? Start with that. And Jenny's going to say, yeah, that's great, Jeff. I'd love to talk to you. Awesome. Well, let me tell you what I wanted to tell you. Or Jenny's going to say, Jeff, I don't really have time right now, but I'd love to talk to you later. Okay, I'll call you back another time. Or Jenny's going to say, what's your name again? And why are you calling me? No, leave me alone. Okay, fine. Great. We don't know each other that well. You don't, you have your own realtor. You don't want to work with me. But guess what? I know where you stack up for me. And I know whether I should continue investing time and money to market to you or whether I should not. Right. So you're very and, practical on the business side, but on that approach, do you think that agents will think, well, that's even worse because they feel I, I can't do that because the rejection. Why don't agents do it that way? I, honestly, I think agents don't do it because they don't want to feel icky. They don't want to have the people that they know and love mm -hmm. feel like they're using them. Yeah. And so honestly, try it. Try flipping the script. Try calling your brother or your neighbor and saying, hey, this is a business call. And I, I've got two minutes of content that I'd love to talk to you about. Even if you're not going to buy or sell this year, it's relevant information that I think would help you. Do you have time to talk to me today? It's, it's a business call, right? And if they say yes, guess what else is going to happen? When you're done talking about the business call, you're still going to ask them how their wife is and how their kids are and all the other things. You're still going to have that very genuine interaction with them. It'll just come at the end of the call instead of at the start of the call. And then you're not going to be in that situation where you have somebody you haven't talked to for a year. And yeah, you know, you sold them a house a couple of years ago, but you know, you're chit chatting them up for five minutes and then you're asking them for business and you feel like that is very disingenuous. They might too. Right. They might think, oh, OK, now I know why. Yeah, I know why you're calling me now, Jeff. I don't think very many of them actually do think that. But but that's what you think yes, they're thinking. Right. So 
which switch it up. So what it, do you provide an item of value to them when you call? Yeah. Hey, do you want to know what's happening in your neighborhood? Absolutely. They love that. Yeah. Every every home seller or potential buyer. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, you know, that gives you whatever type of system you use, right? If you're sending out an item of value every month, whether it's a postcard or a letter or a piece of information, or whether you're doing a podcast or whether you are sending out an email that has market information or whatever, you, know, you should have a consistent prospecting mechanism that on a monthly basis communicates that you are competent in the real estate business and that you care about the person that you're communicating with. Those two things, competence and care. You have to communicate those two things on a consistent basis to the people that you want to work with. So I, back to if you spend an hour a day actively prospecting, making the calls, stopping by somebody's house with a small gift or an item of value, doing a handwritten personal note, if it takes you two hours a day, great. If it takes you an hour a day, awesome. Okay, but here's the thing. We've all gotten accustomed to working from home, to getting up whenever we want to get up, to sitting at our dining room table in our pajamas. And I'm going to say it. If you are sitting at your dining room table at your pajamas while you're making your prospecting phone calls, you sound like it. Okay? Get up. Put on a suit, put on a professional business outfit, go to your office and use the conference room, use the flexible space, rent an office from your company, whatever, but go and be a professional and it'll make a difference. Absolutely. So number two reason that agents leave the business is lack of financial management. Okay. I've illustrated this a little bit earlier with the challenge in the market in 2008. You have to have a financial plan. Okay. And the financial plan starts at home. It starts with a home budget. Okay. If you don't have a home budget and you don't know how much, it, you don't know how much it takes you to pay your mortgage, eat, you know, pay for your kid's tuition at whatever school and, and, you know, all of the things that the necessities of life, if you don't know how much that costs you, then you are, you know, you're dangling in the breeze, quite frankly. I mean, it just, you've got to have a, a better system than that for your personal life. But let's say you put together a home budget and you know $5,000 a month is the nut that I have to crack, right? I need $5,000 a month to pay the mortgage, do this, do that, you know, buy groceries, all of the things. Well, then you can set up and structure your account so that when you get your commission checks, and by the way, a commission check is not a paycheck, right? A commission check is revenue and, and revenue is not profit, right? What's the, what's the intermediary between revenue and profit? expenses, right? We all have expenses in this business. So if you're spending your commissions as if it's a paycheck, it's not, you're not running a business. Your commission is your revenue and your net profit happens after you pay for everything that you have to pay for to be in this business and to provide the service that you're trying to provide to your clients. So if you have a home budget and you know, $5,000 a month is the nut that I have to crack and I get, uh, $10,000 commission check. Okay. And from that $10,000 commission check, I know I have to put $3,000 into a, an account for taxes because I'm going to pay 30%. That's my equivalized tax rate or whatever. And I know that out of every transaction, I'm budgeting 1500 for expenses relative to that transaction. So out of that $10,000, $4,500 goes in a little hole over here, right? For expenses. And then $5,500 goes into a reserve account for my business. And at the start of the month, every month, I write myself a check out of that reserve account 
to satisfy my $5,000 a month home budget. Now, let's say I have a month where I stack two transactions into that month, and they're both $10,000 commissions. Okay, so 10,000, now I've got out of after expenses, I've got $11,000 that's going into that business reserve account. Next month, I'm writing a $5,000 check for my home budget. So I have $6,000 now sitting there in my business reserve account. And at the end of the year, I can take the accumulated effort of that reserve account, take all of that extra money and go make a down payment on an investment property or make a, a significant deposit into a retirement account and reduce my tax liability, whatever it is. But if you don't have that financial management, if you don't have a system, then you're just going to spend your commission check as if it's a paycheck. And that's how you're going to end up in a situation where you've got an $80,000 tax liability and you don't have any money to pay it. Yeah. You should never be in that situation because you're putting money away as you earn it to pay for those things that you know are coming. And then you've covered yourself in the lean months. Right, yeah. exactly. So do you, practically speaking, for you personally, do you, how do you, you do it on paper, you're, profit basically yeah. you know do you have a separate do you have separate accounts you set up yes. where you make your transfers so there's yeah so i have a business checking account a business savings account and a business reserve account and when i get a commission check the money flows exactly as i just described if i get a ten thousand dollar commission check i know i'm putting three i'm, I'm putting 30 cents out of every dollar that i make away for taxes i just know that that's my number i've been yeah. doing this long enough i have a great accountant you should all figure out what that number is for you. But for me, it's 30%. So if I get a $10,000 commission check, 3,000 is going into that savings account for my quarterly taxes. I budget depending upon what kind of a transaction type it was. If it was a listing or a buyer sale, I budget a little bit differently for each. But I take the money that I know I'm going to, on average, spend for that transaction type out of an expense line and put that in that savings account too. So simple math, if it's a $10,000 commission, 3000 in savings for taxes, $1,500 in expenses for a listing. That's $4,500 out of that $10,000 going into my savings account. The remaining $5,500 goes into my reserve account. And at the start of the next month, I make a line deposit. You know, I move the money that I need to from my reserve account to my personal mm -hmm. checking account. And from there, you know, we have long-term savings plans for our kids, college tuition and whatever else. So from that account, from my personal checking account, out of that 5,000 or whatever that number is, is where I filter all of the money to go for my retirement account, for college tuition savings, for mortgage, for groceries, for gas, whatever else it is. So in all the years you've been doing this and the number of agents you've managed, really who's doing this? We actually, what percentage of your agents? Very are... low percentage, but I think as a, as, as a company, I think we have a lot of agents that are doing it because we teach this every year. And I, I am very passionate about this because I think it's horrible to have a successful real estate career and be broke. That's a tragedy. It is truly a tragedy. And I have lived through it, through the lives of other people that I've managed. And so to the degree that I can, as passionately as I can, let people know this is not rocket science. This is basic accounting principles. But here's the other secret. If you have a budget, you have to stick with it, right? If you have a home budget, you have to live within that budget. And I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get in the weeds a little bit if you'll allow me a little bit of latitude to do that. Um, I do this with my kids. 
right? I have a 24-year-old son who's saving for a down payment on a house. He's going to buy his house with a more than 20% down payment at the age of 25 because he's been doing what I've been telling him to do financially. Save your money, have a budget. And part of that budget is you and I both know that if you don't budget for a little bit of fun, you're going to have it anyway, right? If you don't budget for a night out with some friends to go have a glass of wine and some appetizers and maybe go sing some karaoke or whatever you like to do, you're going to do it anyway. And if you haven't put it into your budget, where's the money coming from? For most of us, you're going to put it on a credit card that's going to grow in its balance and you're going to make the minimum monthly payments. And now instead of having a positive balance because you've been smart financially, you have a $20,000 credit card liability that you can't pay. Well, that's no good. But if you budget, right, if you were to say out of a $5,000 monthly budget, I'm going to take 5% of that. I'm going to take 250 bucks and say, that is my mad money, right? That's my go drinking with my friends on a Friday night money. That's my go to a movie with my girlfriend on a Sunday, you know, whatever money. Okay. And guess what? When that $250 is gone and one of your buddies calls you and says, Hey, can I go out drink? You know, you want to go out drinking tonight? Guess what your answer is? No. Oh, so no, I can't be disciplined. No, I can't because I've already spent my entertainment money this month. I'm saving for a down payment on a house or I'm whatever. And so it's going to have to wait till next month. Right. You want to come over and play some cards or something and cool. Right. But we're not going out and spending a bunch of money. We're just, you know, we can go have some fun, but I've already spent my monthly budget for entertainment and I'm sticking to my budget. My son does that. My kids do that. And, you know, they're able to buy houses at ages where a lot of people are like, oh, I'll never be a homeowner. No, yeah. You just have to be disciplined. Right. Okay. So you have to stick with that budget. And the other aspect of the financial management is I think a lot of agents that work in real estate just think it's very intangible to project their income to anticipate their expenses because real estate is so ebb and flow, right? It's a commission-based business. You don't have a monthly salary. You just heard me illustrate how to set yourself up with a monthly salary though, right? Your family shouldn't suffer just because you're having a bad month in real estate. You should be planning ahead enough to know, no problem. I've got reserves to cover, you know, my family's needs for the next month. But having the foresight to sit down with your database list, to look at your past production and evaluate who's going to likely buy or sell real estate this year. Uh, who's going to refer me this year, right? Where are those transactions going to come from? If you have 300 people in your database and you sit down for three hours on a Saturday morning and you go through every name and you evaluate how long have they lived in their home? How many kids do they have? What's their life dynamic? Okay. Their youngest kid just graduated from college and is going to live in Arizona now and not move back to Oregon. So they're, you know, two people rolling around in a 3000 square foot house and they've been in it for 15 years. Well, that sounds like a hot freaking prospect to me. Who's probably going to sell a house next year. And if you have done that evaluation and you're calling them, you're going to get that business because the alternative is they're going to call you and say, Hey, Jeff, can you take me off your mailing list? Cause we moved to Idaho this year. And you're going to be like, oh, I would have loved to have had your listing had I known. You did know. You should have known. But you didn't do the research to figure that out, right? So look through your database. Look at your past production. Project what you think your income is going to be. 
and look at what you think those expenses are going to be, right? If you know, every time I list a property, I spend $2,000 on marketing or $1,500 on marketing or whatever. And I'm going to sell 30 homes this year and 20 of them are going to be listings. Well, 20 homes times $2,000 is 40 grand, Jenny, right? You can figure that out and you can plan for that. So having that budget set there is really important. And don't do what a lot of agents do and just assume, well, you know, it's too intangible. Nobody can really project their income and nobody can really figure out what their expenses are gonna be. That's not true. The agents who are gonna last in this business are doing exactly what I just said. They are figuring Consistently it out. Consistently. Yeah. And if they're off by five or 10%, Okie doke. Yeah. You know, they still had a great year, mm -hmm. but it wasn't just, a, oh, I don't know. I just do my business as people call me. Well, that's a mistake. Right. Yeah. And I think that and you can comment on this as agents sometimes can see success very quickly financially, like some athletes in other professions and they spend quickly and they right. don't do exactly what you're saying. So your method is applicable regardless of whether your GCI is 10,000, yeah. 50,000, 300,000, 2 million. You got to go through the same financial. hundred percent. You know, you're illustrating what I call the big money stigma, right? You have a great month in July, which is historically an awesome month for closings, right? Maybe you close five deals and you make $75,000 in gross commission income or whatever it, whatever it is. Well, that's awesome. You want to know what a lot of agents do when they have a month like that? They go buy a Mercedes. Yeah. Okay. So, but what if you did what I just said and you're like, wow, that's 75,000 in gross commission income is awesome, but that only translated into 30,000 in my reserve account because 45,000 of it went to taxes and expenses and all these other things or whatever. So instead of looking at, and you asked the question about setting up the accounts. And I get this question a lot when I teach my business planning class, do I really need to set up all of these three accounts? Can I just have a checking account and just know that I'm going to take money here and there. Okay. Well, you can do that. But if you look at your checking account and there's a $75,000 balance, you think you have a ton of freaking money. Mm -hmm. But if you look at your checking account and there's $500 in it, and then your savings account that you know is going to pay your quarterly taxes and your visa bill when it comes due at the end of the month has $30,000 in it. Well, you know, that money's earmarked. That's not your money. The IRS already owns that money. You just haven't given it to them yet. Right. And then you have your reserve account that you know you're satisfying your home budget with, and you're looking at it going, well, I got four months of reserves. I'm not messing with that. You know, I need to keep that there to protect my family. That's the difference, right? That's why it's important to have the money flow in that way. So it's not just sitting there like one big pot of gold that you can go tap for your whatever. So it's get realistic, people. Get realistic because right. it does, it, it kills you. You look at that 75,000. I've got yeah. so much money, but no, you really don't. It's, it's really, really just, don't. it's really just a matter of discipline. Yeah. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, when you say to them discipline, they think of constraint. They think of, you know, wow, you're, you're telling me I have to do stuff. I'm, you know, to be disciplined means I have to get up at six o'clock and go work out every morning. I have to put money in these accounts. I have to do this. I have to do that. So I think people usually associate discipline with constraints, but the opposite is true. Discipline equals freedom. If you are financially disciplined while you're earning money, you will have money later in your life. You will have financial freedom at some point, right? If you are disciplined now with your time, you will have good principled time management skills that will help you have more time 
at key moments in your life when you really want the time or need the time. If you're disciplined now with your health, you'll have the freedom of good health when you're older. Discipline equals freedom, not constraint. It's the opposite of what most people think. Sheesh, you listen to Jeff and you think he knows what he's talking about. Well done. So let's talk about burnout because that's, that's only two reasons. So Can I go back before you go to the yeah. third reason I want to ask you, go back to lack of prospecting, follow up on one thing. You talked a lot about you work your sphere. Yeah. So you have a big sphere. You've been doing a while. What about your agents? Newcomers of the business, like, I, I don't, I mean, they may have a bigger sphere than they realize, but let's say they don't. How do you coach them to prospect? What should they do? Open houses, right? Open houses and inventory touring. Thank you for asking that question, because I'm going to take that a little bit off on a tangent. But agents, if you are a new agent and you're new to the area, if you've lived here for five years or longer, you have a bigger sphere than you think, first of all. So, you know, who do you see when you go to the gym, right? Who do you go to church with? Do you have kids who are in school? Who are their parents? Who are you friends with, right? Do you have family in the area? You're going to come up with a list of, you know, 50 to 150 people. That's your sphere of influence. Now, you're going to be communicating with them to determine whether or not they want to use you as a realtor, but they are your sphere of influence, okay? And over time, you'll build past clients and everything else, right? Those, that's your sphere of influence. But for new agents, and I would say, even for experienced agents, for every agent, inventory touring should be a part of your everyday routine. If you don't know the product that you are selling, then you are not going to be a very effective salesperson. If you go to a car lot and you go into the front door and you ask to see a car or you're wanting to talk to a salesperson about the cars on their lot, and their only knowledge of the inventory that they have on their lot is what they can see on a computer screen from their desk in their office. Are you going to work with that salesperson? Right. And that's no different than, than we are. You have to know the inventory. You have to know what it looks like. You have to know what it smells like. You have to know what it feels like. Right. So if you every day spend two hours touring inventory, you're going to be a phenomenal realtor. And here's the reality. What we're illustrating today is, let's say, on the, on the long side of it, two hours a day of prospecting. Get up. Get to your office by 8.30 or 9. There is no place quieter at 8.30 in the morning than a real estate office except maybe a church, right? So get up. Get into your office. Take your two hours of prospecting time. Go have lunch, whatever, and then go to our inventory two hours a day. Right. And the question that I get from agents is, well, you know, do I is it fair to, you know, ask a seller to leave the house to, to tour it even if I don't have a buyer? Yeah. Yeah. In this market, they want you to see their home. And just because you don't have a buyer right now doesn't mean you won't meet somebody in an open house that weekend that would buy, be a buyer for them. Most of the showing requests are done electronically anymore. No one even asks if you have an actual buyer. You just go onto a line showings and say, hey, I want to show the house on Tuesday at three. And the agent responds back and says, go for it. So who cares if it's vacant or if there's a homeowner that needs to be, you know, prepping the home to have you come tour it. They're happy to have you come tour it. And if you're out there touring inventory, then you know it. And, and I can't bottom line it any more than to say, if you are actively touring the inventory, either alone or with a client, then you are a participant in the market. If all you're doing is looking at pictures online, then you're a spectator to the market. That's the bottom line. You don't know anything more about that property 
then your client can find out on any website they want to look at. If all you're doing is looking at RMLS web and looking at the virtual tour, guess what? You know exactly as much about that property as the buyer does. Sounds Why like do they need you? Sounds right? like you're really preparing your agents to use buyer broker agreements and articulate their value. Absolutely. Everything you're saying is so relevant yeah, right now. Absolutely. More so than ever. Well, not just for buyers, Jenny. I mean, think about it this way. So my son-in-law um, is the one who does this for me. You know that I run a big company. Mm -hmm. I don't personally have time for our clients to be out touring inventory every day. But my son-in-law does. And I'm dog on a bone about that with him. Every day you're going to tour inventory. And we're very intentional about that. So we have five listings teed up for January, February of 2024 already. For the last month and a half to two months, I've been telling my son-in-law, tour properties around those listings that we have teed up coming in Q1 of 2024. Because when we update our market analysis in 2024, before we put those properties on the market, the five comparable homes that we're going to be telling our sellers are comparable to their property, it's not going to be we're telling them that they're comparable because they look the same online. It's going to be because you've been in every one of those properties. You know the inventory. Folks, you got to know the inventory. So you prospect for two hours a day. You tour for two hours a day. That's four hours. And if you're an active agent and you've got a couple of transactions in the pipeline, Maybe you'll spend another hour to two hours a day dealing with repair negotiations and blah, 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 and whatever else, right? That's six hours a day, guys. If you, if you dedicated that time, you'd be one of the best agents in the state in six hours a day. See how easy it is? Yeah. Discipline. Back to discipline. Just yeah, do it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Talk about your Burn last out. point. Yeah. yeah. So this is where we're going to talk about the buyer representation agreement okay. very specifically, because you're right. We, we are training that. I know it as uh, association, we're, we're teaching that. Yeah. Um, and I know that we're actively seeking to lobby to have buyer agency become you know mandatory in the state of Oregon. If you're going to represent somebody, you have to have a written contract. Uh, and we're seeking that. And I think that that's a positive change for, for our industry. But let me illustrate it whether you think that's a great idea or not, let me illustrate it from a very practical standpoint, from a safety standpoint and, and the burnout standpoint. When you're working with a client, you are going to give them your A plus time, right? If you've been selling real estate for any length of time, you have probably written an offer on Thanksgiving day. You have probably negotiated a repair addendum on New Year's Eve when everybody else is out, you know, drinking and having fun. And you have shown property at seven o'clock at night and at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, right? You have done those things. We are available pretty much, you know, 24 seven for our clients. Now you can put some parameters around that. Of course, everybody has to have a personal life. And by the way, your clients will respect that. If you, if you instruct them that way, they will, but you're going to be available at a plus time. Why would you give somebody that a plus time? Right. Why would you make a commitment to say, Jenny, you're my buyer. So when you want to write an offer at 10 o'clock on Tuesday night, I'm going to do it. Right. If you call me on Thanksgiving Day and want to go see a house and we can get the seller to agree to it, I'm going to do it. Right. And if I have to miss my kid's soccer game on Saturday morning because we're in the throes of a deep repair negotiation that's going to go sideways, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you that A plus time. Why would I do that if you aren't willing to make a commitment in writing to me to make sure that I get paid? Right. I mean, that's yeah. just that's just flat Common ridiculous. Okay. Good yeah. business. Good All right. Business. Now, 
here's the other side of it and talking about it from a safety standpoint. I'm sure that there's somebody who's going to hear this podcast who has gotten a phone call in the late afternoon from somebody they don't know who says, I want you to show me this house at seven o'clock tonight. And that agent has said, okay, well, let me coordinate with the listing agent and I'll get back to you. They coordinate it and they go show a house. They show somebody they've never met and have no idea who they are, a vacant property in the middle of nowhere in the dark. It happens all the time. Does that at all sound safe to you? Nope. That sounds ridiculous. Habits, bad habits yeah. are hard if, to break. If, I, if you were that agent and I called your family and I said, guess what I'm gonna tell you about your mom? Your mom's gonna go meet a stranger at a house she's never been to at seven o'clock tonight to show it to him. And it's a vacant house in the middle of nowhere. Your husband and your family would call me back and say, you're crazy. My mom's not that stupid. She's not going to do that. But we do it all the time. Yeah. Okay. So here's my advocacy for a, a buyer broker agreement and a buyer consultation and how to avoid that burnout, right? First of all, it's unsafe. Second of all, you don't even know if those people can afford that house. You don't know if they're actual buyers or not, right? So you're taking your evening away from your family for somebody who you don't even know if they're going to buy or if they can afford it. Why would you do that, right? If you stop and say, hey, you know what? I'd love to meet you at that house, but there's a couple of things we have to do first. We have to spend a little bit of time together. I have to review agency law with you so you understand how I'm going to be representing you in the transaction. I'm going to go through the Oregon Real Property Buyer Advisory, and we're going to talk about all the things that as a buyer you really need to know about purchasing property in Oregon. And I'm going to review a buyer representation agreement with you. Now, you may not be comfortable signing that buyer representation agreement today, and here's the deal. If we can go through all of the other stuff together and meet before I show you this property, and you can verify that you're pre-approved and all of the things, I'm going to show you the house, even if you don't want to sign that contract today. I'm happy to show it to you, right? But at some point, if we're going to work together, I will work with you by a written agreement because I'm going to give you my A plus time. Okay. But we're going to have to meet and it's going to take us about 45 minutes to an hour to go through some stuff. And I'm available. We can do that at three o'clock and then I'd be happy to show you that property tonight at seven. And we can meet at my office. We can meet at Starbucks. But guess what? There's this amazing technological tool called Zoom. If you're not available to meet me at the local Starbucks or at my office, I'll send you a Zoom link. I want you to turn your camera on so I can see it. But, and you can see me, but I'm happy to do it electronically, right? So there's those tools exist. And if you have a buyer who's not willing to do that and who isn't willing to get pre-approved or verify that they can afford to purchase the home, they're not a buyer. And if they resist too much, then there's something else that should put the yes. red flags going up in, in the back of your mind, right? It's unsafe. And that is the way that you're going to get burnt out. You're going to get burnt out showing not you know showing non-buyers homes they're never going to write offers on the tire kickers that's that's that how might you're not even be a tire kicker yeah. level yeah so that point. buyer consultation use folks use the oregon real property buyer advisory and this is not a sales pitch for oregon realtors forms that document existed long before we created oregon realtors forms i don't care which forms library you're working with doesn't matter to me use the oregon real property buyer advisory use the Oregon Real Property Seller Advisory. You just have to use those documents. Yeah. I sat with an agent a couple of weeks ago who had invested thousands of dollars in beautiful marketing pieces, slick, you know, wonderful, I'm an awesome agent, here's how much I've sold, I'm great, blah, 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 blah. 
struggling in the market that we're in, you know, saying, what, what can I fix on my marketing? I'm like, honestly, I don't think agents are, I don't think buyers are looking at this crap at all. I mean, not, not to say it's crap. He spent a lot of money on it. It's really good stuff, but they're not looking at it, right? They don't care that you think you're Superman. They just want to know how you can help them. If you took your glossy presentation folder and put the three-page Oregon Real Estate Agency Disclosure Pamphlet and the 23-page Oregon Property Buyer Advisory, and you spent 45 minutes with that buyer reviewing those documents, they would leave that meeting thinking, that guy's a pro, and now I know why I need an agent. Holy cow, I had no idea it was this complicated to buy real estate. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So, so set up the buyer consultation before you meet with a client. It's the safest way for you to do business and it's the way that you won't get burnout. So what, what are you seeing? Why is there, and maybe it's not as extreme as I think, but why is there so much resistance from agents to use the buyer broker agreement? Cause it's just habit, haven't had to, they've gotten complacent and used to. Well, I think there is complacency there, but I also think that they feel like, um, they feel like it's hard to sell it from a couple of standpoints, right? If we're competing for that buyer's business and you say, well, don't worry about it. You don't have to sign a buyer service agreement. I don't care. That's fine. You know, Jeff might want that, but I don't really need that. We can just work with each other. Um, you're competing against that, right? And I think that that is probably the number one objection that I hear is, well, no one else is using it. So when I meet with a buyer and they're like, well, why are you asking me to sign this buyer service agreement? I've never seen that before. I've bought four homes. No one's ever asked me to sign a document like that. And the three other agents I'm talking to aren't asking me to sign it. So why are you? And, you know, I think that's a fair objection yeah. and a legitimate question. And the answer is because I'm a professional. Right? So if you want what I'm going to give you, I know I'm worth a certain fee. I know I'm worth a written contract and us to have clear expectations about what I am going to do for you and what I can't do for you and what I'm going to need you to do for me, because it's a two way street when you're representing a buyer. And, and so that's the answer. Why hasn't anybody else asked me to sign a written contract? I don't know. But I know that I'm not willing to work with you without one. So I have one, no idea why they're crazy. So one of the right? advantages to legislatively mandating this, it will level the playing field. So, yeah, you can say, I, I've, no one's asked me to sign this before. Well, they're going to. Yeah. Well, and now and, articulate your value. And I think that we have to be really clear about that, right? So what we are asking in, in that is... That if, a, if you as an agent, if a buyer wants a realtor to be their buyer's agent, and if you as an agent want to represent a buyer, then there has to be a written contract for that representation. That's really the summary of what we're, promo what we're promoting and what I think we're trying to get put into legislation. Yeah. But commissions are completely negotiable. There is no standard fee. You can right. sign a buyer service agreement with a zero compensation to you. You mm -hmm. absolutely have the freedom yeah. to do that if your broker allows you to, right? So we're not advocating that buyers have to pay for representation or anything like that. But we are saying if you want to have an agent represent you, then that has to be done by a written yes. contract. Which makes perfect So sense. I do think to a certain degree that will level the playing field, but I don't think we need to level the playing field for agents to be able to start doing it. Agreed. I started using have a buyer's it. service agreement years ago. Yeah. And I've, by the way, no one ever says no. Yeah. And I don't have people oh. asking me the questions that I hear agents say they're asking. So either, you know, I'm just a really good salesman or maybe those agents haven't tried and they think that's what they're going to hear. Yeah. 
but I think the latter is probably And you correct. have clearly had some practice and it's part of your business routine. So it becomes second nature in your presentation, which is where you want all the other, other yeah. agents. And, and here's the other thing, taking this back to financial management. If you have a budget and you know you can satisfy your budget, if you know you're not gonna starve, right? If you know that your family's home is protected and that you have food, and that you have the necessities of life, right? And you have money in the bank. And if a buyer says to you, I don't wanna sign a contract to work with you, guess what? I can say, oh, cool, no problem. Go somewhere else then, right? But if you have not managed your finances, if you are desperate, you'll take whatever you can get, Yeah. right? And that's a horrible way to run your business. Sure is, yeah. and everyone can smell desperateness. Yeah. Who wants to work with that? Yep. Okay. And, and it doesn't take much for financial management, right? Even if you say, wow, I'm going to start this. This is great. I'm going to start this with my next couple of deals. After a couple of deals, you're going to have thousands of dollars, maybe not tens of thousands right away, but you're going to have thousands of dollars sitting in a reserve account. And that's going to make you that much more confident and that much more determined to negotiate for what you're worth and to, and to negotiate that contract and not be afraid of that, right? You're afraid that if you don't work with this client, you're not gonna have a commission check and you've already had three months where you haven't had one and you don't have any money and you're late on your mortgage and all of the negative things that come with that. So, hey, cool, whatever, let's just go look at the house. Fine, I hope you write an offer on it. No, that's a terrible way to run your business. Yeah. It's a terrible way to live. And, and listen, this is not a judgment situation. I've done both. I've been an agent for 19 years. I've lived it both ways. So this is a personal experience story, right? And I'm just telling you, the way that I'm illustrating is much more peaceful. And it it, it just makes sense if yeah. you want to be successful in the business, regardless of what success looks for you, like for you personally, whether it's two houses a year, five houses, 500, it still measures success. Right. Managing. Okay. We only have a few more minutes left. So can we touch on business plans? I know you talked about yeah. financial management, three reasons agents leave the business. What is your position on business plans and how do you coach your agents to develop them? Great question. Uh, I think every agent should have an annual business plan. And I've been to business planning classes uh, and, you know, listen, we've been to strat planning things through, age, you know, all of that. And strat plan is a little bit different than a business plan, but I think a lot of agents have the perception that a business plan is this big hoity-toity thing that's in a three-ring binder with multiple tabs, and you know, that's going to get set on a shelf and collect dust. You're never going to look at it, and that's not a business plan. A business plan should be very simple, very practical, right? You should lay out what did I do for the last three to four years in my business? And if you're a new agent, you should do what I just illustrated earlier in this podcast, go through your sphere of influence and evaluate very seriously. You know, where, who are the people, how well do you know these people and who is, who is most likely to buy and sell a house or has, you know, somebody close to them that they would refer you to. And if you need help, there's title officers that would more than be, be more than happy to pull data on your client base and help you, tell you how long everybody's been in their home. There's tons of resources for you as an agent out there and tons of industry partners who would love to help you, right? So take advantage of those. Um, but if you do that production analysis and you figure out how many transactions you think are likely, right? If you're looking at your database, 
you're looking at your past production and, and you say, well, you know, I know every year, last three years, I can see I did 15 deals, 14 deals and 17 deals. I really want to get 20 deals this year. And I've looked through my database. I can see that I have easily 10 people who I pretty confident are going to buy and sell real estate. And so now I have at least half of that, you know, kind of in my potential, you know, opportunity list. So I'm going to have to work hard to get the other 10, but it's possible. Lay that out there. What does that look like? What does the money look like, right? Of those 10 that you know exist, are they $300,000 homes? Are they $1.5 million homes? And then evaluate. Well, if I've got I know this one's going to be a $500,000 listing. Great. That means you're going to spend roughly this much money marketing that listing. And I know this one's going to be a $3 million villa. Okay, well, I'm going to spend a lot more to market that. So I have to budget for that, right? So you can lay out your production. You can lay out your projected expenses. That's the basics of your financial plan. And then you take a calendar, break it down by quarter and say, what am I going to do? Right. I listen to Jenny and Jeff's podcast. I know I'm going to call five people a day. OK, got it. And do it. Five people a day. Right. That's the magic. So got that. What else am I going to do? Right. I'm going to do open houses on this weekend and this weekend. I'm going to you know, circle prospect around my listings in this way when I get a listing. Right. So, you know, a lot of agents, their plan when they get a listing is to sell the listing. Well, that's one transaction. But what if your plan was to sell the listing, get another listing in the neighborhood and pick up two buyers? Well, now that's four transactions out of that one listing. That's a better plan. And there's ways you can do that. OK, we don't have time today to go into all of that depth, but there's resources for that. OK, so lay out that plan. What does that really look like and what activities will you do month by month? If you know you're going to call five people a month in January, what are you going to say to them in February? What are you going to say to them? If you know you're going to send an item of value, whether it's uh, snail mail or whether it's an email or a podcast or whatever, what's the content going to be? Pre-plan it. You should be doing that right now. Right now, you should be. You should know every month in 2024 what you're going to be sending to your sphere of influence, what marketing pieces you're going to deliver, when they're going to land. You can go through CoreFact and pre-plan every postcard for 2024 so that it automatically goes has your credit card in it. You don't even have to do anything. The 1st of February, bam, that postcard goes out. You set that up now. There's tons of tools and resources for agents to be able to automate their marketing, plan it ahead of time and automate it. And if you know why you're calling somebody, it makes it easier to make the phone call, right? If you know that in January, you're calling and delivering settle, settlement statements to all your past clients, great. Well, you did 20 deals last year. You're gonna, that's 20 calls. Hey, I'm calling because I'm going to deliver my, your settlement statement so you can maximize your deductions and write off all your points and all of that stuff. I don't want to put it on your front door and I don't want to mail it to you. When are you going to be home so I can deliver it to you? Gosh, sounds like we need to do another podcast with you as our guest yeah. and go through your business plan and you can show or tell our listeners what you do every month, how you plan yours. Well, and so and that point that I made, so I, the objection I've heard when I've taught this is, well, that's great, Jeff. Well, that's 20 phone calls, but I got to make five a day. What am I going to say to all of the other 130 people that weren't my clients last year? Same thing. Hey, guess what I'm doing this month, Jenny? Part of the service that I provide to my clients is I deliver, hand deliver a settlement statement to them so that they can go through that either on TurboTax or with their accountant, maximize their deductions for their home purchase. That's one of the services I provide. Do you know anybody who'd like that level of service? Right. Same phone call, just different context. 
Easy. Yeah. So it sounds like there is no substitute for hard work, <laughs> right? I mean, you got to work. It's That's a, a career. great quote. I like it. Yeah. You, you want you want to be successful in this business and not be a hobbyist. You got to work. Yeah. You know, I don't know how much more time we have, but to hit that point, because hard work is a is subjective. So hard work, what we just laid out in this podcast is maybe six hours a day worth of work. Consistent work. Yeah. Okay. okay. Let's change it. So, all right. Let's change now, out. The but work. so, so no, hard work is fine, but let's put the context of that. I got into real estate after working my way through college uh, at UPS. And then I worked at Coca-Cola and I had a great sales job and a great sales career at Coca-Cola. But one of the things I respected about that was it didn't matter if you were a merchandiser or the sales manager of the largest facility in the country. If you walked into a store and the shelf was empty, you tucked in your tie and took off your suit jacket and went and found a pallet jack and filled the shelf. I mean, it was very regular that I would have a 12 to 14 hour day and come home with my, you know, arms black all the way up to my elbows from throwing product around all day. That's hard work to most people. When we visualize hard work, we think blue collar, Physical. industrial, hard work. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you what hard work looks like in the real estate industry. Hard work looks like getting to your office at eight o'clock every morning, spending two hours until 10 prospecting, taking a little bit of time to relax, taking a lunch, going and touring inventory for two hours a day, dealing with the repair issue, right? Feeling the stress of the possible loss of a transaction, you know, you know, writing an offer for a buyer and then getting a call from a buyer just as you're headed home for dinner saying, hey, this property just came up and I'd like to see it tonight. You call the listing agent. There's five offers on the table they're presenting and they want offers due by 8 a.m. the next morning. So you go home, you have a quick bite to eat with your family. You get back in your car. You go show that house and you write an offer until 10 o'clock at night. You are physically and emotionally exhausted because you just put in the equivalent even though it wasn't working in a salt yeah. mine for 14 hours, right? There was a lot of flex time throughout the day, but you were on the clock for 14 hours that day. That's what hard work looks like in this business. And for some people, six hours is super hard work. Yeah. I mean, it's all mindset matters. It's all about your mindset and what you want out of your career. So we are out of time. Okay. Jeff, thank you so much as always. The information you provide is so useful and so valuable and it's it's no secret why you're so successful and the agents you coach are successful we look forward to having you back as a guest on mindset matters podcast awesome thank My you pleasure. jeff happy to be here thank you jenny